Years ago, when I was in high school, one of my history teachers gave us an assignment. The assignment was to interview someone, preferably a grandparent or somebody a couple generations older than us, on uh, uh, just something that they experienced in their youth, what it was like. I sat down with my grandfather, and he told us about what life was like on the farm growing up, not baling hay or planting or keep taking care of the uh, horses. No, my grandfather decided he was going to tell his grandson all about slaughtering hogs. That's not an experience we often have in suburbia today. Doesn't come up often here in St. Charles. You know, our hogs are already prepackaged for our convenience. Any of you ever have to do one of those, not slaughtering hogs, but, uh, you know, one of those assignments in high school, you know, interviewing somebody? Yeah, a few nods. Yeah, I, first service, everybody was like, no, no, never had to do that. It's like, yeah, well, y'all are so old, your history books were like 10 pages long <laughs> back in school. But, uh, no, that, you know, we got a younger crowd here in the second service. So, yes, yeah, so I see some of you have had to do that. <clears throat> the whole idea is that we get an appreciation for eyewitnesses, for historical accounts in the first person, for how somebody can tell a story and bring it to life in a way that a textbook just can't. You listen to the witnesses, and you really start to understand. Keep that idea in your mind, the concept of talking to witnesses, and you're going to have a real easy way to grasp the gospel of Luke. In Luke, we find the one gospel that was not written by an eyewitness. He wasn't around for any of the events. He was a later convert, probably a Gentile. Went around with the Apostle Paul on some of his mission trips. If you read the, gospel, or if you read the book of Acts, you know, at first it's they went there, they did this. But in the last few chapters, periodically, you'll see we went there, we did this. And Luke was along for the ride. He never met Jesus during his ministry. The Gospel of Luke is essentially volume one of a two-volume set. Volume two would be Acts. They are addressed to somebody called Theophilus. We'll get to that in a minute. But together, the two books make up a compiled history. We might look at them as how we got here from the viewpoint of an early Christian. He's writing them right about in the mid-60s trying to explain this is what's going on. This is why you have this church. This is why you have all these people talking about Jesus. Because you had these Christians about 30 or so years after Jesus' resurrection, they were just then coming to believe. And they kind of wondered, okay, what's up with all this? And this fellow Theophilus, and there's some debate about this, Whether Theophilus is one dude, maybe a wealthy patron who's paying Luke to put all this together, or maybe Theophilus is just a generic term, because the word Theophilus just means lover of God, and you could apply that to any Christian, hopefully. You know, if you're going to be a Christian, loving God is kind of part of the whole deal, you'd think. And they have debates over that personally. I don't think it matters. Who Theophilus is, not loving God. Loving God matters. But yeah, 
Yeah, it doesn't matter whether Theophilus is one guy or a bunch of guys, or just generic term for Christians. But what we see is Luke is assembling a history of what happened so that later Christians can benefit from it. And in this volume one, the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus as someone who is special. He's not somebody who came along, was really charismatic, and put together a big movement. No, he was special from the get-go. He's not a normal person. He is Lord. And he establishes this through telling the story of Jesus' life from before his birth all the way to his ascension to heaven. Jesus is special. And Luke writes the longest gospel. He's got a lot to cover. He arranges Jesus' life into about three different categories. At each point, we see that, the Jesus, that this Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the Son of God. He's not just a traveling teacher, not just a neat, nice fellow. He is the Son of God come to earth. He opens with the most detailed account of Jesus' birth. You ever look at Luke chapter 1 and see how long it is? It just keeps going and going. Because he begins well before the birth of Christ. Even including the announcement to Mary. And this is something also we tend to read in the month of December. Not in late March when we're getting our lawnmowers ready to go. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Even from before his birth, Jesus was special. You know, nowadays, we've got our ways of making little announcements. You, know, you see it on Facebook all the time. Somebody's having a kid. It might show you know, the, their shoes sitting there with little baby shoes. Or if there's siblings, one of the sibling will be sitting there holding a sign you know, or something like that. Or you know, maybe somebody just decides to maybe burn down California to show they're having a boy. You know, you know we've, we've got our ways of making announcements, but angels... I mean, that's pretty special. That, that kind of stands out. You don't just get angelic announcements. Not even sure where you go to get make one of those. I don't mean the L.A. angels. I mean the heavenly angels. You'd probably get the L.A. angels to do it if you absolutely had to. But, you know, to have, the, have an angel of God come and speak to the mother. That's exceedingly special. 
And as this angel Gabriel explains to Mary what's going to happen, he says, you're going to have a child, Mary. Mary's not an idiot. You see, back then, we tend to look back in people in history and think that they were dumb because they don't know everything we know. They're not dumb. They know full well that there were certain things that, ha- that a person had to engage in in order to have a child. And Mary knew she had not done any of that. She asks, how's this going to happen? says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's not something that happens every day. Near as we can tell, it's happened exactly once in all of human history. That's special. This child is not conceived through through usual human means. And then we also learn... Who this child is to be as, as the angel is explaining this says he's going to be great he's going to be son of the most high the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David you start putting all that together and a Jew would have known this is the Messiah this isn't just somebody who's going to be gifted in public speaking who can do neat tricks this is the foretold one This is the chosen one. This is the one set apart from the foundations of the earth. And as you read through this, especially here in chapters 1 and 2, it kind of gives the impression that this is coming from somebody who was there. I really strongly suspect that Luke talked to Mary. We know he went to Jerusalem. It's probably where she was at. It would, she would have been probably in her late 40s at the time, if even that old. I can't prove it, but I'm like 98% sure the reason Luke has so much information at the birth of Jesus is because he talked to mom. The ladies tend to remember such things, don't they, guys? It's not us putting together the baby book, is it? No, Jesus, Mary was talking to, or as Luke was putting together all of this history, he was talking to the people who were involved. He was getting those firsthand accounts. He even talks about John the Baptist a bit. John the Baptist, you know, comes right before Jesus. He even talks about the announcement about John. He also had that angelic herald. Conceived in the usual manner by elderly parents. When Jesus was born, there were angelic choruses. There were announcements about shepherds. Even at his birth, Jesus is unique. He is special. Babies don't usually have another baby being born to people past childbearing age just to announce their coming. Babies don't have angelic choruses on the night of their birth. All of this is out of the ordinary. All of this points to Jesus as being a very, very special person. The bulk of Luke's gospel is Jesus' ministry. Chapters 4 through 9, he does great miracles while teaching. 9 through 19, he teaches and does miracles. You know, the, kind of the emphasis shifts. 
First part, heavy on miracles. Second part, heavy on the teaching. As Jesus traveled throughout Israel, he did great things while he instructed the people. And his miracles are summed up as he speaks to some messengers from John the Baptist. Here in chapter 7, it says, The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John the Baptist knew Jesus. When Jesus came to him to be baptized, the Holy Spirit called attention to him. John knew this was the Messiah, the one for whom John was preparing the path. But at this point, John's having a rough time. He's in prison. This imprisonment is going to end with his execution. He's under a fair amount of stress, it's fair to say. So he was having some doubts creep in. And he sent some of his disciples to talk to Jesus to make certain. Are you the one? Jesus' response, he looks at these disciples of John and he says, Watch this. And he does a lot of healings. Just kind of gives a summary of things. He says, In that hour, heals of, people of diseases, plagues, evil spirits, the blind, he helps them see. He's doing all this stuff, stuff that normal folks can't do. I mean, Jesus is the great physician and he's not handing out to. You know, here, take a couple of these and call me in the morning. These folks walked away healed. Up to this point in Luke, we've seen some of these things occurring, and it's like Jesus is saying through, through these disciples, John, buddy, I know you've been having a bad time. But look at what is happening. Keep on keeping on. Jesus' ministry is one amazing thing after another. There's not, there, it's not just that there's a whole other field to his teaching because as he taught people, they said, this, this guy teaches with an authority that we have never heard. But he also does things nobody else can do. That's why very often in the Gospels, his miracles are called signs. What's a sign do? Gives you information, right? You know, you'd be driving around out there and you see all these people that it kind of makes you wonder if they think that these large green things with writing on them aren't just put there for aesthetic purposes. Exit! Ahead! And then they cut over four lanes in a hurry. It's like, you know, they, you, you've been told about this for two miles. But you're just not happy unless you try to cause a five-car pileup. You've seen those people, right? Are any of you those people? Because we need to have a talk. You know, read, folks. The, the signs matter. Because the, a sign points us to something else. 
A sign informs us about something. And his miracles weren't just miracles. I mean, sure, they were great. If you were blind and you could see, you're going to be thankful. If you were sick and now you're well, you're going to be thankful. But that's just a big deal for you and maybe the people around you. But these miracles weren't just for you. They were signs. They were to point everybody to something greater. What does it mean when there is someone who can heal our physical maladies with a word? What does it mean if evil spirits obey him and are afraid of him? What does this kind of power point to? What is behind it? What is there for us to learn? That's why these are called signs. And Jesus is doing them because it's pointing to him as being much more than a teacher. Oh, he's special. And he teaches. And we see him, he gains a lot of public interest. You know, as he teaches, people get interested in him. They want to hear him. And we see his mission. We come to chapter 19. And here's another story you're probably familiar with. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Now, back in that day, they were shorter than we are. You know, probably any of us in here would more or less tower over most of the people in that day. And Zacchaeus, if he was short, we're probably talking a dude who was well under five feet in height. So just thinking that, he, he can't see anything. We'd look at him and be like, okay, y'all are short. But man, Zacchaeus is like, wee little man, and a wee little man was he. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to, the guest, to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' reputation by this point is such that even the boss of the tax collectors wanted to see him. Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. And, you know, I want to remind you, tax collectors in that day were not popular. I mean, we, we, not like we're ever really loving them. But back then, it wasn't just that they took your money. They took your money and passed it on to Rome. And they didn't just take your money. And the way they taxed you, you, you didn't have to fill out Form 1040s or anything back then they would kind of set up booths on highways, like going into town, and when you would bring things into town to sell, they'd tax you on them. And the way they got these franchises was by bidding for them. Rome, I can make you this much money. 
and anything over and, over and above that, they got to keep. How, what would you think if you went in for a tax audit and the tax man knew full well if he got anything above a certain number, he got to keep it? I mean, we wouldn't be throwing tea in the harbor. We'd be throwing IRS agents in the harbor. I mean, nobody would have liked this guy. They would have seen him as not just a collaborator with the Romans. He was one of their bosses. And that's why there was such a reaction. You know, you kind of get the idea that he's trying to see Jesus and jumping up and down trying to push through and everybody's like, you hear anything? Nope. He climbs up in the tree. Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your place. Zacchaeus is like, woohoo. Because for a teacher like that to want to talk with him and even go to his house is unthinkable. And he goes there and everybody starts talking like, do you see whose house he went to? Can you believe that? Zacchaeus evidences change. He meets Jesus. He changes half of his wealth immediately given to the poor. This dude would have been rich. Now, we got rich folks today that they could probably give half of their wealth away and never really realize it's gone. If they weren't paying attention to, you know, the world's richest lists, you think Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos could give away half of their wealth and even notice that it's gone? I mean, one of them could do it. They'd still live high on the hog for the rest of their life. And they would still would have given more to charity than all of us in here put together for our entire lives. He does that, and then he says, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll restore it, not just make them whole, give them four times as much. That would be nice. The guy that cut my catalytic converters last year would have given me even what, I, what he owed, let alone four times as much. That would have been glorious. Man, how often do thieves restore it? Not ever. This is a guy who has changed. And Jesus' response, this is why I'm here, to save people like this. This is a son of Abraham, and he's lost, but now he's found. Jesus is on a mission to save the lost. And the thing is, a lot of times people didn't, couldn't really answer the question, who's lost? Who's lost? That's, that's a question we, we need to answer if we find out. Jesus is to, out. He is here to seek and to save the lost. Well, who are the lost? It's easy to point out the lost. It's them. These heathens up here in the front row. Now, it, 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 it. Say nothing to the heathens in the back row. Now, <laughs> you know, we, we have to ask the question, who's lost? And a lot of times it's like, well, it's them. Well, Zacchaeus knew he was lost. Zacchaeus knew he was almost as lost as the people in the middle that I didn't even mention. (laughs) Yeah, I saw you people looking at each other. (laughs) They were thinking, we're Jews, this is as good as it gets. And the pious Jews were thinking, man, you cannot be any better than being children of Abraham who actually care that we're children of Abraham. Who is lost? Jesus was trying to get them to realize everybody was lost. Even the religious leaders were lost. They didn't really appreciate it when Jesus pointed that out to them. 
And that's why he came. He spent his ministry calling people to take part in the kingdom of God, whether they were overly religious or not. That was the call that all needed to know and serve God. Everybody, all of us are lost in our own special way, friends. Some people might be lost in a really big public kind of way. Others of us are lost in a little tiny private way. But lost is still lost. Zacchaeus recognized he was lost. Other people trying to judge Jesus and Zacchaeus for for talking. They were lost, they just didn't see it. Jesus' miracles, his teaching, they were intended to save the lost, but they were not the whole of how he would save the lost. His entire life led up to one act, and that made that salvation possible. As in all the Gospels, every last one of them builds up to the moment of Jesus' death. The crowning moment of his life was when his life ended. In going to the cross, the innocent one took the punishment for the guilty because unless our sin could be dealt with, we could not be saved. The sinless one, the Messiah, would do exactly that in his death and in all the Gospels. But in especially Luke, the crucifixion isn't the end. You see, biographies usually end at death. We don't usually accomplish much once we're dead. You know, that's kind of what dead means. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's executed in chapter 23. In chapter 24, but on the first day of the week. At early dawn, when they went into the tomb, taking the spices they'd prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. The last chapter of Luke contains a resurrected Christ. Yes, the climax of the gospel is the crucifixion. The resolution of the gospel is the resurrection. Because Jesus... They thought they'd killed him to get him out of the way. And we see just how special he is. Not just in his life, but in his resurrection. Because there he is seen, not just by one or two, not just by his closest followers, but seen and recognized by hundreds. You know, if it's one or two people, you can write them off as crackpots. If it's a dozen or so, you've got a conspiracy theory. If you've got hundreds, good luck quieting that one down. They tried and they failed. We're still talking about it 2,000 years later. That initial statement from the messenger, he is not here, he has risen, that would have been hard to believe because how many people come back to life after all? I've done a lot of funerals. 
very often with an open casket. It's never been with an empty casket. Never got to the funeral home and had the funeral director look in there and say, Where'd he go? That would be a little weird. But how often had Jesus done the impossible thus far? Casting out evil spirits, healing the sick, raising the dead even at one point. And now he himself is raised. And bit by bit, he meets with his followers, his disciples, larger groups, and eats with them. They see him, they touch his hands and feet, and they, this shows his followers that this is indeed Jesus. He's not an imposter. They'd have, they'd have noticed. It's not a hallucination. Not that many. No, he has risen. And all of this points to somebody who is unique and special, unlike every other person the world had ever seen. You know, we talk about, well, you know, you're special. My mom said I'm special. Oh, we're all special. We're just not that special. Yes, you're special just like everybody else. Jesus was special unlike everyone else. And this explains why this new movement had begun with someone like this, the promised Messiah, the Son of God. How could things not change? He's writing to people who are wondering, how, how did all this come about? And he's saying, this is why it had come about. This is what happened. No wonder things were in such upheaval. No wonder this news is spreading. No wonder everywhere you look, there are new churches and people proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And lives are being changed. Luke did his research. He assembled this history. And this is why we're still here. Because Jesus has come and everything has changed. And we depend on the histories written by folks like Luke. You know, some histories are really reliable and some are really not. I'm not really sure Mel Brooks' History of the World Part 1 is all that reliable. But if you start judging things by the standards of historians, the Gospel of Luke, friends, it stands tall. Because you have somebody not long after the events that happened, speaking with people who would have experienced them, who would have been there, put together in a reliable way, agreeing with what others from the same time had said. And they even had the opportunity to correct the record if Luke had been wrong. Because he names names. These people saw him. Those people saw him. And if Luke was wrong... They could have said, no, Luke's a liar. That didn't happen. Luke's conclusion is that the Son of God has come, so can we hold back? Can we remain unmoved? He tells us to follow Christ and to be saved. You see, this history isn't just put together for trivia. It is put together so that we will do something with it so that we will believe, so that our lives will be changed, so that we, like Zacchaeus, will come to Jesus, that we lost folks will get found. He came to seek us. He found us, 
and now we seek him. We were lost, Jesus found us. We were mired in sin, Jesus has freed and forgiven us. Like Luke, we seek Christ. We follow him. We're changed by him. We're saved by him. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We are grateful for the efforts of Luke and the rest who wrote all this stuff down for us so that we would know your son Jesus. Lord, help us to follow him, to seek him. Lord, we help us to be found by him so that we can be saved by him. Lord, draw us to you. Turn our hearts to your son. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.